0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
1: The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable, ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Join Tales for Darkness.
2: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about psychiatric shenanigans and unusual appliances. I'm Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill Podcast, now in its fourth season. Available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts can be found. If you can't get enough of the macabre, look me up too, and subscribe for even more horror than you can handle each and every month. Tonight, I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my friend Steve Taylor. In the meantime, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Ryan Harvell and Micah Edwards to life are voice talents Drew Blood and Luis Bermudez. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our Theater of the Minds. Embrace yourself, it's time to turn off the lights, and turn on the dark. Our first tale comes to us from author Ryan Harville, and is performed by Drew Blood. In it, we'll find ourselves alongside Deputy Carl Hayford on the night in late August, at the local psychiatric ward. And, just after all of his patients are nice and cozy in their rooms, locked behind reinforced doors and windows, he receives a new patient in his ward. And everything goes to hell. Without further ado, I present to you, The House God.
3: Deputy Carl Hayford, and these are the events of August twenty eighth. The full story, all of it, including what I couldn't put in my official statement. It was a slow night. All of the patients were nice and cozy in the rooms, locked behind the reinforced doors and windows that looked out into the shared hallway and the smell of antiseptic cleaner and bleach still lingered from the maintenance crew's weekly scrubbing. It didn't bother me much. I liked the smell. It made everything feel clean and orderly. C-block was where the worst off were kept, the ones that had the highest propensity for violence. The majority of the patients were criminals, or people who had had a complete break from reality and posed a threat to themselves or others, sometimes both. There were twelve cells, eleven occupied by patients, two of which were prone to catatonic states. Before coming to C-Block, I didn't know there was a difference between comatose and catatonic. I was doing my usual checks. My first stop was almost always George. I walked up to his window and peered in. George was in his fifties, and his states could last for days at a time, but he was awake for the time being. I tapped gently on the glass, and George looked up from his drawing and smiled. Deputy Hayford, he said, and nodded. Sorry about the light. I just woke up this morning, and I'm afraid more sleep may be out of the question tonight. I shrugged. I wasn't going to hassle you about it. What are you working on? George picked up the drawing and laid it flat against the glass. I had a dream while I was away, he said. The hunt continued. When he would wake, he would talk about the hunt. Said it was like some dream place he went to while he had one of his spells. Then he'd draw pictures, trying to capture whatever he'd seen on paper. What kind of traps could take down a large predator? Where to shoot to incapacitate a deer? Things like that. He once made a drawing of a trap that would behead a giraffe. I don't hunt, and I've never seen a giraffe outside of a zoo, but it looked like it could actually work. The newest drawing showed what looked like a man, but reminded me of a beast. His expression was feral and filled with teeth. I nodded to him. Looks good. He's a hunter, George said gleefully, then dropped his voice near a whisper. But also pray. (laughs) I returned his smile, mine not nearly as wide, and walked on to Davy's cell. Davy's states would last for weeks, but he was never unresponsive. Davy suffered from echoproxia, a fancy way of saying he had a bad habit of copying people's movements. Now, I know that's simplifying it, but I'm no doctor. I always felt bad for him. He was only nineteen years old. If you were to walk by his room, he would watch you from the window, and chances were he'd mimic whatever you were doing. If you waved, he waved. If you scratched your chin, he scratched his chin. You get the idea. When he wasn't in one of his states, he was mostly normal. Mostly. That kid loved comic books, sci-fi, fantasy. I would bring him books and he would speed through them. After a few years, we were friends. Well, as much as we could be given our situation. So, yeah. Anyway, it was a slow night. After I finished my rounds I went back to the security office where I spent most of my time watching the monitors. Two cameras on each end of the hall and one in each room. The light above the east exit went red, meaning someone was outside. The monitor showed Officer Jennings, Steve when we weren't around patients, standing with the man in restraints. As I watched, he picked up the landline phone from the cradle beside the door. I answered my phone before the second ring. Steve, what's happening? I said, looking at the restrained man. But I wasn't expecting the new guest this late. Steve looked up to the camera as he spoke, his slick hair shining in the light of the hall. Yeah, sorry about that, Carl. This one had to be kept under the radar. If the press got wind of it, it would have made for a much tougher trip over here, not to mention the death threats. The mention of the press unnerved me. I pressed the button to pan the camera to the far end of the hall. There stood four more guards, weapons drawn, and at the low ready. Jesus Christ, Steve, who is that? Have you been living under a rock? Steve asked. Well, let's get him inside, and then we'll talk. I left the office and walked to the door, picking up my keys on the way. Two key turns and the press of a button later, I was standing face to face with a beast. The man was bald, with scars crisscrossing over his scalp and a patchy beard on his face. Normal enough, but his eyes were just... just blank. No light, no humanity. That's as close as I can explain. Steve waved the other guards in behind them. Where do you want them, Carl? I pointed to the cell across from Davy. It had been empty the longest. Steve led the man in and removed the restraints. The man went over to the bed and sat, staring ahead at a blank wall. Thank God that's over, Steve said. Come on, we'll talk in your office. We went in and I shut the door behind us, leaving the guards in the hall. What is going on here, Steve? It's damn near 2,200 and you're bringing me a surprise guest that needs that many guards? He sat down in my chair, hard, causing the springs to squeak in protest. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, okay? This wasn't my call. And as long as he's in the cell, he's fine. Besides, did you see his eyes? He's sedated, and he won't be causing any trouble for at least eight hours. Well, who the hell is he? Steve raised an eyebrow at me, incredulous. You seriously don't recognize him? If I knew, then I wouldn't have asked. That, he pointed to the man's image on the screen, is as Corso who the media in their infinite empathy dubbed Killer Counselor. The name hit me like a hammer. Corso used to be a family counselor, and had killed two entire families, a grand total of two men, two women, and seven children. Christ, I said. He would separate the mother from the father, Steve said, and put them in different rooms, each with one or two of the kids. He would then convince each of the parents that the other would be let go, children included, if they would kill the children in the room with them. I remembered. Yeah, I said. The father would kill the children, then be shown into the other room where the mother had killed the other children, neither of them knowing. Both cases ended with the father killing the mother, and then himself. Steve laughed. (laughs) That's the very definition of fucked up right there. Why are you laughing? I said, my anger rising. That, that thing in there needs to be put down, not hospitalized. Steve smoothed his mustache with a free hand. I'm not arguing with that. Shit, if I could get away with it, I'd walk in there and off him myself. But this is only temporary. He's going upstate, to Linwood. But we've had protesters along the route. Grandparents swearing vengeance. Media vultures hovering overhead. We just needed somewhere to stash him for the night and get the route clear. He doesn't get the luxury of being lynched. He's going into general population at Linwood. Hopefully a bigger animal will kill him slowly and save us some tax dollars. I took a couple of deep breaths, trying to calm myself. How long till he's gone? Tomorrow morning, Steve said. Seven sharp. I'll call you from the hotel when I'm heading this way. I looked at the monitor showing Corso's room. He just sat there, staring ahead. I turned back to Steve. Make sure you are. I don't want him here any longer than he has to be.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
3: An hour passed and Corso hadn't moved at all. I walked the hall, holding my notepad and filling out the nightly log. As I passed Davey's cell, he approached his window miming me, holding an imaginary notepad of his own. I smiled and nodded knowing it didn't mean anything to him right then. I turned to the opposite side and looked in on George. He was shiring, his bathroom curtain closed and steam rising to the ceiling. I was about to go on my way until I noticed the shadows. There were two shadows behind the curtain. One was obviously George, who had managed to keep his belly even after years of confinement. The other was a much larger man standing behind him. I immediately pounded on the window as I got my keys out with my other hand. By the time I turned my key and punched in my code, George had opened the curtain. He stood there staring at me, wrapped in a towel and dripping onto the floor. Deputy Hayford? he asked, color rising in his cheeks. What is going on? I swung the door open hard enough for it to thump against the wall. My hand was on the butt of my pistol, ready. "'Where is he?' I asked, trying to remain calm. "'There was someone else in here. Where is he?' He shook his head. "'There's no one else here,' he said. "'I've been told I'm crazy, but I'm not blind.' I walked around him and pulled the curtain all the way back, bunching it up against the wall. Nothing. It didn't make any sense. I knew what I had seen. George must have noticed my expression. Don't worry, deputy. Hallucinations happen to the best of us, he said. I averted my eyes from him. No, I guess it was my mistake. I thought, well, I don't know what I thought. I'll get out of here, let you get back to what you were doing. I could feel him watching me as I left in a daze. As I walked back to my office, I passed Corso's room. He was staring at me, his brow furrowed in anger, but his mouth showed a wide smile. He got up from his bed and hurriedly walked to the window where he stood, looking me in the eyes. You interrupted my fun, he said. His voice sounded like his throat was full of gravel. Can't a person have a little me-time without having an armed guard pounded on the door? What he was insinuating was absurd, that he was somehow able to, uh, I don't know, ''Get away from the window,'' I said as calmly as I could. Corso smiled wider and headbutted the glass. It shook in its frame, and a red welt immediately appeared on his forehead. I pointed my finger at his face. ''Stop! Stop it now, or you'll be cuffed again!'' He slammed his head forward again. Blood splashed across the glass. "'I can do this all day,' Corso said, looking past me and over my shoulder. "'But I don't know how much he can take.' (laughs) I turned to see Davy standing there at his own window, blood pouring down his face. He rammed the glass once more before I could stop him. "'Davy, no!' I screamed, but he was in a state and paid no attention to me. I ran to his door, fumbling for my keys. Corso struck the glass again, and Davy echoed the movement. The pen pad shook as I slammed down on the buttons. Their heads collided with the glass once more in unison. I threw the door open just as Davy collapsed. His head struck the floor with a sickening thud, and I slid the last few feet on my knees. With a quick pull on his shirt, I turned him on his side so he wouldn't choke on his blood. He began to convulse. As I tried in vain to keep him steady, I grabbed my radio and thumbed the button. This is Deputy Carl Hayford, C-Block. I need emergency medical personnel down here now. A sing-song voice came through the speaker. Davy was still. His last breath was a blood bubble on his lips that slowly shrunk back into his mouth. I stood, then looked through the glass at Corso. I could barely make out his features through the blood. His smile disappeared and he slammed his face against the glass, smashing it like putty. There was an audible crunch as his nose broke and fresh blood splattered across the glass as he screamed, Who has disturbed me? The lights went out in his room and he was gone within the dark. I drew my pistol and stepped across the hallway, aiming at Corso's window. Nearby, George spoke from behind his door. Don't, Carl. He wants you to enter. He wants to trap you, your prey." My eyes didn't move from the window. Go away from the door, George. Get towards the back of your room. It'll be safer there. Carl listen. George said. Don't let him talk to you. If you see him, shoot. Don't hesitate. As I approached Corso's door, it opened on its own. (laughs) My hands shook as I slowly stepped into the shadows, and then I was in my house, not the apartment I'd been living in for the past few years, but the house I had shared with my family. Bright sunlight streamed through the windows over the kitchen sink, and everything smelled just as it always had, fresh flowers. Jacqueline always loved fresh flowers. I could hear her in the bedroom, our bedroom, crying. Then I realized what day this was. It was the day she left you, Corso said. He was sitting on my old couch, blood still running from his face. I wheeled towards him and released the pistol safety. ''It's so sad,'' (laughs) he continued, ''losing a child so young.'' ''Don't,'' I said. ''Just shut the fuck up.'' He grabbed one of our throw pillows and used it to wipe his face, leaving a half-clotted mess on the fabric. ''You know she left because of you, right?'' (laughs) ''Losing the baby was one thing, but you could have had more.'' But she couldn't live with you. She couldn't deal with your grief. It was stifling. She was choking on your depression like a throat full of black tar. (laughs) Get up! I screamed. Stand up! We're... I didn't know what to say. What could I do? I didn't even know what was real. Corso picked up a picture frame from the end table and looked at it, then put it back down. How did it feel, Carl? Watching her slip away. You wouldn't even hold her after the funeral. Oh, wrapped up in your grief. (laughs) That's when she knew. The next year was sticking around out of obligation. Out of fear, fear of what you would do to yourself. I began to cry, crying like I hadn't in years. Why are you crying, making noises like a drunkard who cannot sit still on his stool? You know what to do, Carl. I raised the pistol. "'Little baby in the dark house,' placed the barrel in my mouth. "'You have seen the sunrise,' my finger was tied on the trigger. (laughs) I looked to the window to look at the sunlight, to look out at the yard. What had the view been from that window? Was it the garden?' I couldn't remember, so there was nothing outside of the window. I couldn't remember, so Corso couldn't know what to project there. As soon as I pulled the pistol from my mouth, he was on me, throwing me to the ground. I rolled through the threshold, then we were grappling on the floor, each of us trying to get a grip on the pistol. Give it to me! He screamed. You miserable piece of shit! Corso swiftly brought his knee up into my groin. Pain bloomed like a fire, and I was immediately sick to my stomach. He dropped like a stone, pushing his elbow into my throat until blackness crept into the edges of my vision. Suddenly, I could breathe, and his weight was off me. I turned to my side, retching and gasping, and there was George. He had pushed him off of me and had managed to get his thin hospital-issued bath towel around Corso's neck. I flailed blindly for my pistol. Corso reached behind him, grabbing, and pulled him down by the arm. I'm going to fucking kill you, he hissed. I'm going to tear at you with my teeth. I am the house god. I... His hiss turned into a scream as George shoved his thumb into Corso's eye, his thumbnail popping it like a grape. Relief washed over me as I grabbed the pistol and quickly aimed at Corso. He reared back and away from George, his hand going up to his ruined eye. I fired over and over again, the shots deafening in the corridor. Corso looked down at his wounds, then at me. He smiled, slumped against the wall and died. Every breath was fire. My balls ached terribly. I looked at George standing tall and now completely naked his body spattered with blood. I tried to form words as he grabbed his towel and covered himself once more. (laughs) How? I croaked. How did you get out? He asked. I nodded. After you barged in, you left the door unlocked. (laughs) I laughed and it hurt, but I laughed anyway. He thought you were prey, (laughs) he said. I nodded. I was, I said. I was just lucky enough to leave the tiger's cage unlocked. George smiled. It felt nice to hunt, he said. The medic showed up a couple of minutes later, and within half an hour Steve showed up, bleary-eyed and half asleep. I gave my statement, at least the parts that didn't make me look like I belonged in one of C-Block's cells. I can't explain what exactly happened or how Corso could do the things he did. Did he really convince those people to murder each other? Or did he force them like he tried to force me to eat a bullet from my gun? I don't know, just like I don't know why I'm writing this out. Two nights ago I woke up in a sweaty tangle of sheets singing Corso's little song. It happened again last night and here I am putting all of this on paper and I'm not sure if it was my idea. I think I have to because I tried to stop and couldn't. Something wants me to write this down. Wants to see its name on the page. It's a lullaby spelled out for everyone to read. This whole time, I've been fascinated and afraid of Corso, but I don't think that's who I should have worried about. I've disturbed the house god, and Lord help me, I don't know what to do now. You have disturbed the house god.
2: I hope you enjoyed The House God, as written by Ryan Harville and performed by Drew Blood. If you enjoyed that last tale, I encourage all of you to visit Mr. Harville's official website, ryanharvillewriting.com. Harville is spelled H-A-R-V-I-L-L-E. Again, that's RyanHarvilleWriting.com. You can also find his works on Amazon.com or connect with him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, you can hear more of Drew Blood via his series of the same name exclusively on our official YouTube channel, where you'll hear haunting new tales every month. If you check him out, be sure to give him a thumbs up and leave a kind word, and tell him you heard about him here on this program, and that Jason sent you. It would mean a lot to us. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Micah Edwards. It's performed by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition champion and host of our latest series, Bermudez Triangle, the one and only Luis Bermudez. In it, we'll meet a man who's received what you might suspect is a rather boring gift, a novelty toaster, But this timeless piece of technology promises more than a hearty breakfast. It guarantees a miracle with every meal. Little does our protagonist know, however, that he's about to get a taste not of crispy, buttery goodness, but of abject terror. (laughs) (laughs) sorry. I couldn't resist. Now, without further ado, I present to you, Toast Wanted.
4: This is the story of how a novelty toaster ruined my life. First of all, I want to clarify that I'm not the kind of guy who buys a novelty toaster. I got it at a white elephant gift exchange a couple of years back. You know, one of the swaps where everyone brings a gift and then you pick blindly and see what you get. Well, what I got was a toaster that burned the image of Jesus into the toast. People seeing Jesus in their breakfast was big for a while, I guess. I kind of remember when that was a thing. Anyway. This toaster made it so you could have a miracle every meal. At least, that's what it said on the box. I kind of hoped someone would steal the gift so I'd get another chance at drawing, but no one did, so I took it home, put it on a shelf in the garage, and forgot about it. Then, sometime in the middle of last year, my regular toaster quit working. I put in a couple of slices for breakfast, pushed the lever, and realized ten minutes later that the toast had never popped up. For a minute, I panicked, sure, that it was on fire, and I somehow hadn't noticed, but as it turned out, the toaster contained two slices of perfectly cool, untoasted bread. Ordinarily, I wouldn't have even cared, but I had someone over and I was kind of trying to make a big thing out of breakfast. You know how it is. I'd made bacon and scrambled eggs, and toast is just part of that. You can't make a plate with eggs, bacon, and some floppy uncooked bread. And the eggs and bacon were already done, so I was committed to the meal at this point. I'd started preheating the oven, figuring I could probably manage to toast the bread in there if I was careful when I suddenly remembered the novelty toaster out in the garage. It only took a minute or so of rooting around before I came up with my prize. Breakfast was saved. The toaster performed as advertised. It took bread and made it into toast. I popped the first couple of slices out, noted that they did, in fact, have a face slightly burned into one side, then promptly cut them into triangles for a better presentation on the plate. That was about as much attention as I was inclined to pay to the toast, but my overnight companion was apparently a more curious sort. What's with the bread? She asked holding up one of the triangles and turning it back and forth, trying to make sense of the markings. Uh ah, goofy toaster thing, I told her. Puts the face of Jesus on your toast. I didn't buy it. I got it as a gift a while ago. I only got it out today because my regular toaster died. I'm, I'm not weirdly into Jesus. I was rambling, but that was all right because she wasn't listening. She picked up the other triangle and was holding the two pieces together Looking at the full picture, doesn't look much like Jesus, she said. Well, it's heating elements on bread. You're only going to get so good a picture. Sure, but doesn't Jesus usually have a beard? I looked. It was actually a surprisingly clear picture. There was some nice shading, which I found very impressive given the medium. My date was right, though. It didn't look anything like Jesus. It was a slightly heavy-set guy, a little bit jowly, probably late 50s. He had glasses and a scowl on his face. He didn't look holy at all. Huh, was my intelligent contribution. I held up my own piece of toast, which showed what appeared to be the same man in profile. This had to be a joke from someone at the factory. Someone had swapped out the plates or whatever was inside. Well... Maybe it's Jesus in his later years. Jesus didn't have any later years, my date pointed out. I know how to solve this problem. I took a large bite of the toast. There, now it's not a picture of anybody. It's funny. I genuinely can't remember her name or what she looked like, but I remember that face burned into the toast. It had kind of stuck in my mind even before I knew it was important. It really was an excellent likeness of someone who was definitely not Jesus, and that seemed like a weird sort of screw-up to have happened in the manufacturing process. If it hadn't looked like anything, I could have understood that, but to look distinctly like a different person? So the toast was still on my mind when I went out for groceries that day. I wasn't actively thinking about it or anything, but it was still there. Enough so that when I spotted a heavyset guy down at the end of the aisle, My first thought was, he looks kind of like the guy from my toast. We were heading opposite ways down the aisle, getting closer to each other, and as he drew near, I started to get weirded out. He didn't just look kind of like the guy from my toast. He looked exactly like him. Same glasses, same slightly sagging cheeks, same haircut. I told myself that I was imagining it, that it was just a strange coincidence, but I couldn't stop staring. The more I looked, the more certain I was. I'd seen this man in my toast this morning. You need something? He'd caught me staring. No, sorry, you just remind me of someone. Yeah, who? Jesus, I thought. But the man didn't look like he had much of a sense of humor. I just shook my head and said, Just someone I used to know. You're the wrong age, though. Sorry. Sorry. We pushed our carts past each other and went our separate ways. I refrained from looking back over my shoulder for fear that he'd catch me staring again. But when I got home, I put another slice of bread into the toaster. The image that came out was definitely the man I'd seen in the grocery store. I told myself that it was just a weird coincidence. The toaster had a weird flaw. The guy had a generic kind of face. That was all it was. It was still bugging me when I got up the next morning, so I made toast again. I had a vague idea that I could reverse image search the picture, maybe find some sort of facial recognition program to compare it to online photos or something. I don't really know how this stuff works. I just know it's out there. In any case, it turned out to be irrelevant. When the toast popped up, I snagged it out of the toaster and was confronted with a picture of a totally different person. This one was a man with a hipster beard and maybe his mid-twenties. No glasses, no scowl, no chance that it was the same image as yesterday. The profile view showed some odd markings below his ear, maybe birthmarks. It was clearly an image of a specific person. There was no way I could dismiss this as a defect. I put in another piece of toast and got the same image back, as identical as variations in the surface of the bread would allow. I peered inside the toaster, trying to see the piece that made the image, but all I could see was flat, featureless metal. It was like it was creating these pictures out of nothing at all. I thought about opening it up, but there was a label on it, warning of a risk of severe electric shock, and I had no idea what I'd even be looking for anyway. Some sort of plate with shifting pins? That might explain how it was able to do two different pictures, but not how it made a picture of a man I saw later in the day that part really was just happenstance i told myself as i ate my toast it's just got some sort of pre-programmed set of options and one of them happens to be a generic older white guy i probably saw dozens of guys like that every day really there were lower odds that a toasted image wouldn't look like one of them when you thought about it in fact that explained the whole thing i looked around online and found that you could buy selfie toasters where you could put in whatever image you wanted this must have been one of those models that had somehow gotten into the wrong box. They probably made them all in the same factory. Once I could figure out how to change the settings, I'd stop getting the factory presets on my toast. I was able to keep telling myself this, right up until I took my dog Odin out to the dog park. He was having a good time, rough housing with the other dogs, but at one point it started to turn a little too serious. I stepped in to grab his collar, just as the owner of the other dog came to pull his away. I was looking down at Odin at first, so he didn't really register at first. All I saw was the hand on the collar and a pair of skinny jeans. "Ah, Thanks, I said as I looked up. Sorry about… I froze as I found myself looking directly at the man who'd been on this morning's toast. Same facial features, same beard. The marks behind his ear that I hadn't been able to make out in the toast were a series of small, tattooed stars. It was perfectly clear now that I was looking at him in person. The image had definitely been him, not just someone like him. It was too perfect to be a coincidence. No problem, he said, not seeming to notice my alarm. Come on, Bruno. If you're going to be a bully, you can't play. He gave me a half wave as he towed his dog away. I stared after him trying to figure out what this meant. Something insane was going on. My toaster was predicting the future, or I'd just gone totally crazy. Of the two, the second option seemed a lot more likely. People went crazy every day, after all. Toasters very rarely became prophets. Odin twisted in my grip, anxious to get back to running around with the other dogs. I let him go and watched with envy. He was carefree, blissfully unaware of magic toasters and whatever strange messages they were trying to send. Enjoy it while you can, I told him on the car ride home. When I get sent to the loony bin, you're going to end up at the pound. Then you'll understand why this matters. I became obsessed with the toaster. I had to know what it meant, what it was trying to tell me. I made toast every morning and studied the two pictures, looking for anything that connected them to the previous ones. I took photos so that I could compare multiple days of images side by side. I took notes, made measurements, searched for answers. I could find no links. The people were random each day, all races, all genders, all ages. They were most often in the range of 25 to 50 years old. But there were more than a few whose wrinkles stood out prominently in the char, and at least a couple of children who couldn't have been any older than eight. The ratio was about 60-40 men to women, but there was no clear pattern for when one or the other would appear. Sometimes I'd go a week with nothing but women in my toast. The only thing they all had in common was that I saw them at some point during my day. It was usually just a passing glance, but As my obsession grew, I began to scan crowds as I walked through them, determined to catch my target unawares. I reasoned that if I could follow them, maybe overhear them, I might find out what connected them all. This, too, was of no use. I did begin to spot many of them before they saw me, and even successfully followed a few unobtrusively. They all simply seemed to be going about their lives, though, no different than anyone else I had passed. Why, then, did the toaster care about these specific people? I found out, almost by accident. Actually, completely by accident, for certain meanings of the word. I was out walking Odin one day, doing my now standard paranoid scan of my surroundings. I noticed I'd caught the attention of a young family walking on the other side of the street and gave them a cheery wave, trying to act like I was normal. Their child... A small boy spotted Odin. His eyes lit up. Doggy, he yelled. Before his parents could stop him, he took off at a run directly across the street and into the path of an oncoming car. I don't recall hearing the child scream. I do remember the twin screams of the parents as the car sent their son spinning away, tossed through the air like a bag of garbage. I remember the screeching tires as the car skidded to a halt and then again as the driver saw what he'd hit and fled the scene. I saw the driver's face as he looked back, pale and shocked, even frozen in horror as it was. I recognized the man from that morning's toast. The boy, unbelievably, was alright. More or less, anyway. One leg was badly broken and an entire side of his face was bleeding from being scraped across the pavement. But he was lucid and crying, which, under the circumstances, seemed like a very good thing. The parents took their son to the hospital while I waited for the police. Any chance you saw the play? The policeman asked me, after I had given him my story. No, but I can describe the driver. I gave a thorough description based on what I'd seen in the toast. The policeman looked skeptical. Yeah, you saw all that and the instant he turned back, I had a very clear view of him, I insisted. It's sort of burned in. They let me talk to a sketch artist, who ended up making a very good likeness of the man. They even put it up on the evening news, though I think none of the police expected anything to come of it. It worked, though. According to the news, the next night the man turned himself in after seeing his face on the news. He begged for clemency, saying that he wasn't a bad person. He just panicked in the moment. That got me thinking. What if what linked the people wasn't a common goal or plan, but a concept? Not something they were on the outside, but something they were on the inside. The next day, my toast had a picture of a bearded man with facial tattoos. The two pictures looked more like mugshots than ever on a whim. I went to the website for the local jail and started clicking through the recent bookings. It only took a few minutes before I was presented with a mugshot that looked almost identical to the picture in my toast. Richard Bowman, booked on a swath of charges, ranging from drug possession all the way up to murder in the first degree. My plan had been to go out to the jail to see him, but then I thought, what if I didn't? What would happen if I disproved one of the toaster's predictions? Now that I knew where it thought I would be, I could just not go there. I had free will, after all. Then I thought of all the ways I could meet a violent criminal that didn't involve walls separating us and decided that this wasn't the time to test causality theories on my psychic toaster. I hopped in my car and drove off to the jail. On the way there, I tried to figure out how to ask to talk to Bowman. They probably knew who his family was, and they definitely knew his lawyer. I probably needed credentials to pose as a reporter. I thought about just saying I saw him in my breakfast, but decided this was not really a situation that called for the truth. In the end, I didn't have to say anything. As I was parking outside the jail, I saw several guards overseeing a half dozen men being loaded into a small bus. One of them turned and met my gaze. Even with the distance and fences between us, I recognized Richard Bowman. With Bowman being transported, I could easily imagine all sorts of scenarios where he and I met under less separated circumstances. I congratulated myself on my decision not to test the toaster's abilities. I was at least beginning to form a theory about whose picture the toaster created. It was showing me people who had done, or would do, bad things. Over the next few weeks, I tested this theory and slowly refined it to be more precise. Each day, the toaster showed me the worst person I would see that day. Some people, like the man from the hit-and-run, had just made one very bad decision. Others, if I made a point of going where I knew they would be, would show up day after day. Often, they seemed to be perfectly normal citizens. No one but me knew what they were actually like. I fantasized about digging up their secrets, private investigator style, and turning them over to the police. Everyone would be amazed at my prowess. We had no idea, they would say. However, did you figure it out? I would tell them about my investigative techniques. I would not tell them about my toaster. The morning toast had turned from a worrying aberration into an exciting puzzle. I researched the people it showed me hunting for hints about what might have been in their past. I watched the news to see if anything they had done that day featured. It was a game, and it was fun, until the day my mother came to visit. It all started innocuously enough. She called to say that she'd be in town for a week for work, and I invited her to stay at my house. If it's not an imposition, she said. No, of course. It'll be great to see you for a week. I'll bring your stickers, she promised. I laughed. Growing up, Mom had always traveled for work. She was gone about a week every month, and for as long as I could remember, she'd always brought me back a small sticker from wherever she'd gone. I had a huge wall map of the United States that was covered in these stickers. She and I would put them on the map together over the city she'd been in, and she would write the date on it. The map was folded up in a box somewhere, but I still had it. Mom was continuing to travel for work, and whenever I saw her, she'd give me the envelope full of stickers she'd been saving for me. I hadn't gotten around to putting a lot of them on in the last few years, but I always meant to, and I still enjoyed getting the stickers. Mom rolled in early on Saturday morning. She'd always preferred to drive through the night, so I knew to expect her early. Still, she got there before I was fully functional, so I let her in and told her to get set up in the guest room while I showered and generally made myself presentable. I emerged from the bathroom to the smell of breakfast cooking. Mom waved at me from the table as I entered the kitchen. I made breakfast. I hope you don't mind. There's plenty for you. By the way, I love your toaster. I let out a small laugh. Yeah, it's… where did you get the pictures of me? My blood ran cold. My mother was holding up a piece of toast which unmistakably wore her image. She was smiling as if it meant nothing. And why would it mean anything to her? But to me, it was horrifying. You okay? Mom asked, noticing my sudden freeze. Yeah, I'm fine. I forced a smile. I I just... Yeah, uh, breakfast sounds great. I'll... How was your drive?" We made small talk as we ate. I pretended everything was fine, but I heard almost nothing, she said. My mind was racing. This couldn't possibly be right. My mother was a wonderful woman. She was no saint, but there was no way she was the worst person I was going to see today. Unless maybe we didn't go out? That would make sense. If I just stayed in all day and didn't see anyone other than her, then by default she'd have to be the worst person I saw. That was probably all it was. I used up the last of your milk in my coffee, my mother said, and I noticed that your fridge is a little low on veggies. You're eating well, I hope? Yes, Mom, I'm fine. I just usually go grocery shopping on Saturdays, so I'm low on stuff. Well, don't let me break up your routine. I'm sure I can entertain myself while you're out. I can go later. Don't be ridiculous. Go do. Pretend I'm not even here." Reluctantly, I left the house to go to the store. I tallied the people I passed. Every person who met my eyes, clanging another condemnation against my mother. She was worse than that man, worse than that woman, worse than that whole family. By the time I got home from the store, I'd crossed paths with hundreds of people. I wondered if she'd hit something on her way here, like the man I'd seen before. Someone I didn't want to say to myself, but her car looked fine, and she seemed completely unrattled. Still, something bad must have happened. Maybe she stole something from me while I was at the store. I turned it over in my mind all day, watching her for clues. I saw nothing out of the ordinary. The next day, I was up before my mother. I wanted to hide the toaster before she saw someone else's face on the toast and asked questions about who it was. I thought about telling her my theory, but I obviously couldn't now. Before I put the toaster away, though, I popped in a piece of bread and set it to toast. I wanted to know who to be looking for later on. A few minutes later, the toast popped up. For the second day in a row, it was a picture of my mother. I left the toaster on the counter. Mom wouldn't have any suspicions. She would think it just made sense to have the same picture day after day. Anyone would, anyone but me. My thoughts were, was my mother hiding some dark secret from me? She didn't seem any different. How long had she been doing it? I Googled her hometown crime statistics, missing pets, missing people. Nothing looked out of the ordinary. I started to breathe more easily. Whatever it was, it wasn't as severe as I feared. Then my mother came in for breakfast. She had an envelope in her hand. I've got your stickers. Do you still keep them on the map? Where is it? It's out in the garage, I told her. It's put away right now. Well, unput it away, we've got stickers to put on. I rummaged around in the garage and returned with the map. We spread it across the table. Mom clucked her tongue as she looked at my pile of unattached stickers. You're so far behind. Well, I have my own record of where I've been. We'll get this fixed up." So saying, she picked up one of the stickers and affixed it to the town where it belonged, adding the date she'd been there. An idea that had been tugging at my sleeve for attention suddenly grabbed me by the wrist and pulled. Her hometown wasn't the place to look for unusual activities. The travel map was. All of the locations marked with the dates she'd visited. That was what I needed to search. I I waited until she went to bed that night, then took my laptop into the kitchen and set it on the map. I picked a city at random, Denver, then pulled up a missing person's website. I told myself that I'd start with the worst thing possible to get it out of the way first, then move on to more reasonable ideas. There were two people who had gone missing from Denver, around the date of my mom's travel. I told myself that it was fine, that Denver was a big city. I just. Needed to pick somewhere smaller. Ogden caught my eye. Down in Utah. I put it into the database. Another missing person. On and on I went. Frantically typing in city after city. I breathed a sigh of relief every time I found no match. But there were far too few of those. More than half. Maybe even more than two-thirds of the ones I checked had people who had gone missing while she was there. This was everything I'd been looking for in all of my research on the strangers I'd seen in my toast. This was the huge case, the break no one else was ever going to get. Her pattern didn't exist if you didn't know where she'd been over the years. I knew. The map laid it all out. It would link together hundreds of cold cases. And all I had to do was turn my own mother in to the police. She was a murderer, a serial killer, the most prolific one I'd ever heard of. The evidence was all there in front of me, and even if I tried to explain it away, the toast made it clear that I was lying to myself. I laid awake all night agonizing over this. The next morning, my mother commented on it. You look rough. You should get more sleep before work on Mondays. Here, I made you breakfast. She passed me the toast. It had her face on it. All week, I fought with myself. I told myself that I'd misunderstood something, made some illogical leap. Meanwhile, I kept finding new articles of bodies found in shallow graves matched to missing persons whose dates and locations coincided with my mother's travels. And every day, no matter where I went or how many people I saw, the toast bore my mother's face. Friday night, the local news had a report about a teen who had been missing since last week. Poor kid, my mother remarked. I hope they find him. I thought of the news articles of the people they had found, the bodies buried on the roadside. I searched her face for any hint of compassion or remorse and saw nothing. She was utterly unconcerned. She left late that night. I knew what I had to do. I had to call the police. If I didn't, there was every reason to believe that she would find a new target on the way home, a new victim to leave under shallow sands for the animals to dig up. She had to be stopped, and I was the only one who could do it. I was the only one who knew. I turned the phone over and over in my hands. I stared at the screen. I dialed no numbers. Eventually, I went to bed. The next morning, the toast showed me my picture. It's been the same every day since. I know what I need to do to stop it. I know what has to be done. Instead, I just tell people that it's a selfie toaster. It's easier that way.
2: I hope you enjoyed Toast Wanted, as written by Micah Edwards and voiced by Luis Bermudez. If you enjoyed that performance, don't forget. You can hear more of Luis Bermudez via his new series, Bermudez Triangle, exclusively on our official YouTube channel, where you'll hear haunting new tales every month. If you check him out, be sure to give him a thumbs up and leave a kind word and tell him you heard about him here on this program, and that Jason Hill sent you. And, if you enjoyed Toast Wanted, and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, Micah Edwards, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com edwards. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash edwards, spelled E-D-W-A-R-D-S and you'll be redirected to the author's Amazon profile where you can buy his books today including his collection of the many tales he's written over the years entitled Fright Bites as well as the many anthologies he's been featured in over the years. And again, if you enjoyed what you read don't forget to leave him a five-star review and a kind word And let him know you heard about him here, on this show. Thank you so much for your support of this program, and of tonight's featured author. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page. And leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us.
1: You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request.